Let's turn our thoughts to God's Word then for this morning. And as I've indicated on your bulletin, I want to begin a new series today which will run probably for a number of weeks. At this stage, I really have no idea. But it will run for perhaps six or seven weeks anyway. I want to give it the title, Life's Most Important Questions. And as, again, indicated on the bulletin, this would be perhaps a very good time to think about inviting others along to church because we will be dealing with some of the most basic questions that people, I believe, in our world today are asking. And they're looking for answers. And it's our responsibility as God's people to give them the true answers to the questions that matter most. So let's prayerfully think about who perhaps individually we could invite along over these Sundays. There will be a break, of course, over Easter. I'll be away for two Sundays. But after that, we'll continue through this series. And certainly, in view of the number here this morning and, and also the number last Sunday, we really are desperately needing to do something to boost our congregation. So let's each one take that on board today. So life's most important questions. Maybe some of these will be questions that some of us here ourselves are asking, or we've never really received a, a proper and full answer to. I went on to the internet to see if anybody on there was maybe looking at this kind of subject. And I found a website that is devoted, in fact, I don't know if you can see that from here, it calls itself Life's Most Important Questions. And I thought, here we go. And I printed off, there's about five pages of questions. Let me read you some of them. Can you grow birds by planting birdseed? They reckon that's one of life's most important questions. Did Adam and Eve have navels? Does, there, does anybody ever vanish with a trace? How can there be self-help groups? Think about these. How do you know when yogurt goes bad? If inert is to be stationary, what is ert? If a jogger runs at the speed of sound, can he still hear his walkman? If God sneezed, what would you say? If you spend your day doing nothing, how do you know when you're finished? If you're traveling at the speed of light and you turn your headlights on, what happens? Shouldn't there be a shorter word for monosyllabic? <laughs> I can't even pronounce it. What do sheep count when they can't go to sleep? And so it goes on. If you want to have a look, feel free later on. I hasten to add these are not the questions we're going to be dealing with. Questions we're going to be dealing with will be things like this. Why am I here? 
Why do I exist? Is there really a God? Am I unique? Does Jesus Christ really exist? Questions like that. And we'll try and answer as we go along. So today I want to start that process off. And I want to do it by looking at the question, why do I exist? I apologize, by the way, that there's no PowerPoint today. I did prepare one, but having to play the keyboard as well, it's just too much to cope with. So later on, once Louise is back, we will get that reinstated. So why do I exist? Why do you exist on planet Earth? this morning there may be many answers to that question I'm sure if you went out onto Dingwall High Street today and stopped people at random and asked them that question you would get many different answers some would say well I exist purely to make money to have a bigger bank account others might answer well I exist purely to get pleasure in life Others might say, well, maybe there's something deeper, but so far I haven't discovered that. There are many answers to that question. You remember some months ago that dreadful tragedy in Russia and Beslan. And there we witnessed some folks who obviously exist for the sole purpose of hate. And hatred in our world. And we see that day after day in Iraq and in other places as well. As the lives of innocent women and children are being taken. Some people sadly go through life. And they never come up with a satisfactory answer to the question, why am I here? And I believe that places tremendous responsibility on your shoulders and on mine. Almost every day in my work, we have to deal with tragedy. We have to deal with persons who have tried, and many sadly who tried successfully, to take their own lives. It's part of the work of the staff in my department to deal with these. People often ask themselves the question that I'm trying to deal with this morning, why am I here? There seems to be no purpose to my existence, so I'll go and jump off the Keswick Bridge. What in the world am I doing here? Am I just a, a product of random selection? as Charles Darwin would have us believe? Are we here simply because we happen to be stronger and fitter than, than others, so we've somehow survived the process? Or am I here today living and breathing for a reason? Why do I exist? Is there a higher purpose to life than many seem to have found in our world this morning. Could it be that life is a gift from a loving creator God? 
Well, I know I'm preaching this morning, as it were, to the converted in the fullest sense of that term. But it's still good for us, I think, to look at the subject. So I want to answer that question, or try and answer it, from a distinctively Christian point of view. And I make no excuse for that. That's why I'm here. But understand that the reason that I believe what I believe in response to that question is because this is what I've discovered in my life and I'm sure that you have as well. So why then do we exist? I want to give you four answers to that question this morning. I exist, first of all, to be loved by God. That is why I'm here, to be loved by God. You might not even feel that as you come to church this morning. There will be many in our world who won't understand what I'm saying in this first part of the answer. Many will disagree with it, but God's word makes it abundantly clear that this is true, that we exist in the world to be the recipients of God's love. Ephesians 1, 4, long ago, even before he made the world, God loved us. That's what we read earlier on. Before you and I even took our first breath, God was in love with us. And God wants nothing more this morning than this, that you and I should bask in the experience of his love. So no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter what our life's experience up to this point has been, even when we've done things that we know displeased God, doesn't change the fact that God loves us and God wants us to know and experience and receive his love. 1 John 4.16 We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in him. God is love. And all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. It isn't just that God loves us. But he is defined this morning by his love. God is love. It's what we read there. We were to come up with a one-word dictionary definition of God. What would it be? Surely it would be this word. The word L-O-V-E. Love. God is love. And it's not just love in the way that the world uses that term today, in the sense of something that is warm and fuzzy and emotional, but in the sense that God will go to extreme lengths to prove and to show that he loves you and me. We exist. To be loved by God. You remember back in 1989, that dreadful 
tragedy that occurred at the football stadium in Sheffield. Ninety-six fans were crushed to death that day. Around another 200 fans were very seriously injured. And at one of the hospitals nearby where the victims were being taken, an attending surgeon spoke with some of the parents who had come along grieving they had lost loved ones. And the surgeon stood there and he read the names of those who had been killed in the tragedy and he expressed his heartfelt sympathy for the relatives. And he said this to them. He said he believed that God understood the parents' grief and was with them in their time of need. And one father bitterly responded to that with these words, What does God know about losing a son? This father was surely overcome by his grief and by his emotion. And he probably didn't realize at that moment what he was actually saying. But God knows exactly what that experience is. God lost his son, so to speak, when they took him and they nailed him to a cross. He knows what it's all about. He knows exactly what they're going through. God gave his son as a sacrifice for our wrongdoing. And he did it for one reason. He loves us. 1 John 4.10 This is real love. It is not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Romans 5.8 God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. That's why we exist. When we rejected God's love, and we've all done that at some stage in our lives, rather than turn away from us at that point, God was still there for us, and God was coming up with a remedy for our hopeless situation. And God came up with a way through which you and I could be reconciled to him. And he sent his son into this world. Born as a baby in the manger. The one who died on the cross, as we have said. And he did that so that we could continue to experience his great love for us. God, you might say, took the one that he loved most, his own son, and gave him to pay the penalty for the ones who loved him least. Over in Isaiah 53, those familiar words, he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped and we were healed. All of us have strayed away like sheep. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and the sins of us all. 
Why do we exist in the world this morning? We exist, firstly, to experience that great love that God has for you and for me. Isn't this something worth telling Dingwall in these days? That they are here for a purpose and supremely this is it. So that they might know that love, experience that love in their own lives. Secondly, we exist to be members of God's family. One man tells a story of being at the Special Olympics one year. And he said that the runners for the 400 meter dash were all lined up and they were being helped with their incapacity, whatever it was, to the starting line. This is what he wrote. As I watched, a gentleman in a three-piece suit jumped up in the stands in front of me and began yelling, Lenny, Lenny! An overweight, middle-aged man with Down syndrome looked up in the direction of the voice. The gun sounded, and the runners leapt forward, all except Lenny, who was dead last and losing ground. He had a preoccupation with his hands, which he wrung furiously as he tried to make his way around the track. Pointing to him, the gentleman in front of me turned and addressed my section of the crowd. That's my son Lenny. Isn't he doing great? He called. When Lenny reached the last turn on the track, the other runners had already finished. But the gentleman began to shout encouragement to his son, throwing his fists in the air in a triumphant gesture. Great job, Lenny. Well done. Go on, son. Keep going. You're doing great. And he turned, he said, to my section again and reminded us all that his son was about to finish. We applauded dutifully, feeling somewhat embarrassed. When Lenny crossed the finish line, the man made his way down to the track and hugged his son who was exhausted, drooling, and still wringing his hand. And he says, while I watched them embrace, I began to weep. And then as I thought about what I saw, it seemed as though, as though God was saying to me, you are like Lenny in this race that I have called you into. You're challenged. You're perplexed, far behind the pack. Most days, you're in a pitiful pile of exhaustion. But I'm here, and I'm cheering you on. I love you the way that that man in the crowd loves his son. And in Ephesians 1.5 we read, God's unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family <coughs> by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ, and this gave him great pleasure. 
So many people in our world this morning seem to have mistaken ideas about God, that he somehow is out there to get them, he's against them, that he wants nothing to do with them, he simply wants to keep them at a distance if he exists at all. Nothing, of course, could be further from the truth. God in his love wants to adopt them into his own family. He wants us, if you like, to be his kids. And he takes great pleasure in that. When we accept his invitation to come into a relationship with his son Jesus Christ. That's what gives God great pleasure. So not only is God, excuse the double negative, not only is God not displeased with us this morning, not only is God not trying to keep his distance from us, not only is God not staring down upon us, waiting for us to make a mistake, Instead, God takes great pleasure in being in a relationship with each one of us. John 1.12, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Talk a lot about rights, don't we, in the world of today? But there is a right that God has given to every man, every woman, every child, everyone who has ever or ever will be on this planet, no matter what country they live in, no matter what the color of their skin might be, no matter what language they speak. And that is the right to become a child of God to be adopted into God's family, to have a father, unlike many earthly fathers, who truly loves, who truly protects, who truly cares for each one of his children. It is the right to say without any hint of hesitation that I know to whom I belong, and I know the purpose for which I live. And I know my eternal destiny. Because I know who my Father is. He is the one who has adopted me as his own. Into his own family. And every promise that he has ever made. Is a promise he will keep follow through in my life. Why do I exist? I exist to be fully accepted. I exist to be adopted and adored as a member of God's family. Don't you suppose there are people in Dingwall today who need to know that? How are they going to discover it? unless you and I tell them. And then thirdly, I exist to build God's kingdom. 
It's interesting as you go through the Bible, the word kingdom is used in many, many places and it's used in different ways. It's used, for example, of the earthly and political kingdoms. Perhaps that's the way that that word is used mostly in our world today. We talk about the kingdom or a particular country on planet earth. But it's also used in the sense of the kingdom to come, the kingdom of heaven, you might say. But another way it is used is in the present spiritual sense where we have two kingdoms. We have the kingdom of darkness and we also have the kingdom of light, the kingdom of righteousness. Kingdom of darkness where all that is evil dwells. And the kingdom of light or of righteousness manifested in the church of Jesus Christ. This is the kingdom for which you and I exist in the world today. The kingdom of the church that God is building in these days. The kingdom that is growing despite evidence to the contrary in many ways and in many places. That kingdom that God is developing and molding and using until that day when the kingdom of heaven is ushered in and all who are presently in the kingdom of the church will one day dwell. Over in First Peter, it speaks of those who, as it were, stumble over God's word and who end up rejecting his message of love and his message of relationship as we've been looking. But immediately following that, he speaks of those who accept God's offer of love through his Son. 1 Peter 2 and 9 But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a kingdom of priests, God's holy nation, his very own possession. This is so you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. That's it, isn't it? In, in that verse, and there are others as well that you can find, here is a statement, if you like, of our identification and a mission mandate that God has called us to as his people in the world of today. This is so that you can show others the goodness of God. It says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. And here in 1 Peter, he's using a language that, is, that has formerly been reserved for the Old Testament. The people of Israel, and God says to the church of Jesus Christ, you are a chosen people. You are a kingdom of priests. You are God's holy nation. You are God's 
own possession. That is powerful stuff, isn't it? And God says that to us this morning. And he says it in two ways, I believe. He says it to us corporately, but he also says it to us individually. Individual members of this church, place yourselves there. In that verse in 1 Peter, he identifies us all in this way. And then he says that our mission as individuals, our mission as churches is to show others his goodness and to call those who this morning are still in darkness, call them out of darkness and show them how they can live in his light. Show them how they can experience the same love that we've experienced so that they too can be adopted in to his family. So that they too can begin working towards something greater than they have ever understood before. And that is surely the great work of ushering in the kingdom of God in its final and in its eternal form. So we are not simply meeting here this morning to, as it were, do church. That's not why we're here. We want you to know that our plans are not just to be another gathering place that we can conveniently come to at odd times, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, whatever. Our work as a church is not to provide some other form of social activity. That is not what we're called to. We fully plan and expect to work in this community as a church. Yes, that work must be building the kingdom of God. That work must be spreading the good news of Jesus Christ to those in this community. That is our scriptural mandate. What we are hoping and praying for is not just to build up our membership. Oh, we have to do that. It's obvious. Look around you. We must do that. But we must build up kingdom army those who are equipped to go out into this world and fulfill that task that God has given to us so why do I exist I exist to build God's kingdom and then finally and briefly I exist to bring God glory I exist to bring him glory this morning. A man with the name of Nikola Tesla is the scientist who, in, who invented or discovered the method of generating electricity that we know as alternating current. And he's referred to in one of Philip Yancey's books. Some people would regard him as a greater scientist than, for example, Alexander Graham Bell. 
but his name isn't as well known. But Philip Yancey tells an interesting anecdote about Tesla. And he says that during storms, he would sit on a black mohair settee by a window. And when lightning would strike, he would break into applause like one genius recognizing the work of another. And this man could appreciate better than anyone the wonder of what he was seeing as the lightning flashed across the sky because he had spent years researching electricity. And in a similar way, the more we know about God, the more we will have that desire in our hearts to bring him glory and honor and praise. Closer we walk with him, the more the desire will be there to be with his people in his house, worshiping him on Sunday morning. And when we truly understand that we exist to be loved by God, to be adopted into his family and are given the great privilege of working for him in building up his kingdom, then within our inner being, I believe, there erupts this great desire to bring glory to that same God, to come and worship him, to come and lift his name high because of what we know he has done in our lives. This is why the Apostle Paul, while in the middle of teaching us about the forgiveness and mercy that he himself had received from God, kind of breaks off from that and goes into praise, saying in 1 Timothy 1.17, Glory and honor to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. You see, I believe it is impossible to truly know God, and I mean really know him, and not live a life that desires more than anything else to bring glory to him and to his name. Now I understand that the first three answers I've given you this morning to the question, why do I, do I exist? This third answer doesn't make a lot of sense. But when I truly grasp, when I fully take on board what God has promised me, when I accept all of what he has said and done is true, I not only begin to comprehend what it is all about and what it means, but at that point I should begin to give God glory. It actually becomes part of who I am as a person, as an individual, and only then Will we be truly satisfied? Well, there we have it. Time has beaten us.
but I've got to ask you the question that I've been trying to answer this morning. And I ask myself as I ask you, why do you exist? Is there a reason for you being here on planet Earth in the year 2005? Have you identified with the four answers I've tried to give you this morning? Is there a reason why you and I are here in church this morning? Could it be that God wanted us here to study this particular aspect of Scripture? Because there is something there that he wants you or me to, to take on board. That there's something there that we need to discover afresh and accept and move forward from this place and truly live by? Could it be? Could it just be that the thing that you have been missing in your life is contained here? And maybe God has been speaking to you this morning. And it's all before your eyes. It's there. It is in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there any possibility that as we have looked at this question, that God has been speaking to you because here is the answer to something you've been looking for? I have no doubt that God is here God is speaking. And for some of us, there are choices to make. May he help us to make the right ones for his glory. Amen.